October. This is crazy. Time is just flying by. I hope you guys really enjoyed last week's episode about how media and play can help heal trauma. What amazing information. I just love that. I hope you guys have gone on to Transfiguring Adoption's website and all of their social channels and followed them. I think some real rich, rich information and great resources are there. So this week's episode actually comes because we had um, a question in the Facebook group, the podcast Facebook group, about why people choose different types of adoption, right? So why are there people that go through private adoption when there's children in foster care? And why do people spend a bunch of money on adopting a baby when they could uh, do it essentially for free through the state? And what, you know, why do people choose international and all that? And I said, you know, that's a great question. I, I don't really know who to ask that question. The first I would think is to just, you know, survey a bunch of families that have done all sorts of adoption and figure out why they choose to do, do what they did. Uh, but the place I decided to start, because of course that would be a pretty uh, lengthy process to do a huge assessment of all of the people that have adopted, uh, I went to an attorney. So I actually looked up this question. I, you know, I'm not like the keeper of all this information. When somebody asked me a question, I'm just resourceful, right? So I just went on Google and I said, what's the difference between public and private adoption? Or why do people choose one over the other? And one of the blog posts that popped up like first on Google was from Jennifer Fairfax, who is an attorney in the DC area. She's got three different state licenses, but this is what she deals with. And she deals with solely law around family planning. So that is adoption, which is what she does a lot of her work where she also does assisted reproductive technology or IVF. She does those uh, types of cases. And she also does uh, surrogacy. So she kind of knows all the ins and outs of what the legalities are around different types of family planning. And for this episode, we talk about adoption. What are the different kinds? When do you need an attorney? What does an attorney do? What do you get for each path you take? You know, what are the different, um, things that you can expect if you're going to choose public, private, uh, international, and why would you land on one? So I ask her all the tough questions. She is an open book. She's amazing. She really wants to help any uh, families that are trying to build their families. And she loves doing, you know, individual consultations at the beginning with people to help them kind of to determine these paths because there's so much out there. And I will say that I didn't know much about this. I actually thought I did. Um, and I would have probably told you an answer thinking I knew, but I actually learned a lot that I didn't know from Jennifer. So if you know anyone that has even remotely thought about adopting before, please share this episode with them because it will really give them a thorough breakdown and probably advise them to go seek out an attorney before they start, you know, any of the process. And if you are not considering adoption yourself, this is a great episode for you to listen to, to understand all the different pathways that somebody can choose to adopt because, right, we're going to make a whole bunch of assumptions on how adoptions happen, but those aren't always correct assumptions. So this is going to show you kind of the breadth of options that there are for people and how people build their family through adoption. All right, guys, let's do this. 
I'm Rebecca Britt, and this is the Stable Moments Podcast. I started this podcast to understand from all perspectives how we can help end the foster care crisis. The overwhelming response was we need to support our local communities. Unwanted, abandoned, orphaned children are the community's responsibility. We must support, guide, love, invest, raise up generations that will nurture, love, and support their own children to end this crisis. So the purpose of this podcast is to build an army of people that are interested and willing to take responsibility of our foster youth and who are supportive of foster and adoptive families. This is the on-ramp for people who want to get involved but might not know where to start. I want this to be a place where community members feel like they can make a difference, where they feel good enough to make that difference, and believe that they can be a big deal in the life of a child. Thanks for being part of our community and make sure to join the conversation in the Stable Moments podcast Facebook group. Together, we can end the foster care crisis. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining me on this call. I'm, I'm so excited because we actually had a person ask, like, what, why do people choose private adoption? If they, why do they pay so much money um, to get a kid in the U.S. when they could just go through... Um, foster care and they could pay almost nothing and what what makes people make those choices and I thought you know I've had that thought too and I don't know the answer really um so I wanted to reach out to you as an adoption attorney somebody that specializes in um in family planning and ask you you know these questions and really just to break down all the different kinds of adoption there are because I know I didn't even know, and a lot of our community wouldn't. So before we do that, can you just let the audience know kind of who you are and how you got into adoption law or family law? Sure. Well, first off, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm glad to be here, and I do um, truly enjoy making sure that people out there have a good understanding of all their options before they start uh, building their family. So I'm looking forward to this today. So I um, started out in family law um, and um, before, even before I was a practicing attorney, I was a law clerk and was uh, fortunate enough to overview or oversee the adoption docket at the court that I was working at and really kind of fell in love with the way in which that process worked, sort of creating families and and creating legal ties, Um, obviously um, in final hearings, very joyous um, occasion, but also seeing through the court the other side of it and understanding understanding that there's a balance and having a a drive to always want to help people and be there for people kind of geared me that direction. Um, So family law served some of that purpose. But as I started to get further into my career, I realized that really helping people build their families was something I was passionate about, um, as well as helping women in crisis um, that were trying to decide and make a decision about what to do about a pregnancy when they weren't in a place to parent. Mm. And so I ended up just sort of taking on adoption cases and other types of family building cases through my law firms and kept going. And uh, now for uh, 15 years, I've been doing exclusively adoption um, as well as some surrogacy and ART practice. Um, And I've expanded. I was licensed in Maryland, licensed in D.C., and then a handful of years ago, I became licensed in Virginia so that I could help. Uh, clients and families um, and birth parents in all three jurisdictions. So that's how I kind of how I got here and uh, how long I've been doing it. And I, you know, enjoy, enjoy the practice, the, the 
good, the bad, all of it. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and you mentioned ART, and just for people that don't know, it's it's the new, more um, accepted term for IVF, right? So assisted reproductive technologies, is that what it stands for? That's correct. Okay. That is correct, yeah. Cool. So we, we are going to focus on, you know, the adoption side of this, although it, I see how it's all, it can all be very interconnected and it's all related to building your family. Um, so at what point, say somebody's interested in adopting or they're interested in fostering, they want to build their family um, through foster adoption. At what point do they look for an attorney? What time, at what point do you come into the conversation? So I usually encourage people to come see me really at the very, very beginning before when they're just starting to figure out that this is what they want to do. And I say that because an adoption attorney with a lot of experience can talk about all the different ways that you can build through adoption. Um, so usually I do an initial consultation uh, with prospective parents, usually lasts an hour or so. We walk through all the variations. Um, a lot of times I don't have um, families come back to me for six, seven months, maybe even a year or two later um, for legal representation because they then take in everything that I've given them and then they've sort of tried to figure out the path that they want to take and they followed it and then they come back to me when they need me. So, you know, early on meet with a lawyer to talk about all the options, understand it. Most adoption attorneys will encourage you to pursue the path that um, is best suited for them. So if, you know, private, international, domestic, I know we'll talk about all the variations, um, but explaining that uh, without really leaning in any one direction, because all of the ways are viable and, and good options. It just depends on what works for the family. And I know you recommend that, but do you find that people are knowledgeable enough or educated enough to usually come to you for a consultation first, or are they usually somewhere in the process and then they come to you? <laughs> so I think it's mixed. I certainly have a good percentage of people who come early, probably because at least in my area, I, you know, I get out there, I speak, I talk about it, I advocate for this. And so I mean, I'm fairly well known in, in this area. So people know to come for, to me for that initial consult. But a fair number of people have already started down a path when they come see me. Um, and sometimes we're, we're on that path and we can't get off of it because they've made uh, commitments, either financial or emotional investment into the process that they're in and they hadn't maybe considered other options. Um, and as is any attorney, I certainly have my fair share of cases where they come to me when there's a problem, mm. when there's a concern, and um, they're coming to me to try to help figure out and navigate a way out of it. Um, so I see them across all. Um, the majority of people tend to come either early on, like I said, or after they've chosen a path and now they know they, they need a lawyer. Somebody has told them you should hire a lawyer. Mm. Okay. Okay, great. So, and what is, if, if somebody was right now saying, oh, shoot, okay, I guess I should get a consultation, what type of lawyer, like, what do you Google? <laughs> well, I think, I mean, honestly, I think you, you, you can do two things. One, if you Google adoption attorney and then put your state after it, okay. so adoption attorney Maryland, adoption attorney Florida, wherever they are, they should be able to get adoption attorneys in that area. The other thing is, is I'm a fellow of the Academy of Adoption Attorneys, um, Adoption and Assisted Reproductive Technology Attorneys. So they could look onto a website that, with, that lists attorneys that specialize in adoption. Okay. Um, and so then they could locate an, an attorney in their state. 
I think it's important that they ask anybody that they're going to be meeting with about their adoption experience. I know there's a lot of lawyers out there who say they do adoption, but they might only do step parent adoption, mm -hmm. or they might have done a few, you know, public agency finalizations. And you really, if you're really trying to figure out what you want to do, you need to talk to a lawyer who really has done hundreds of adoptions, who has done all different types of adoptions. Um, so you really, before you even pay money, you want to ask how many adoptions have, has this lawyer done? What kinds of adoptions have they done? Make sure they're sitting down with somebody who really can give them a broad stroke of everything that's out there. Okay, so then let's talk about that. So somebody comes in and says they're completely new to this world. They don't know where they want to get a child from, but they know they would like to build their family through adoption. So can you lay out the kinds of family building you can do uh, to adopt a child into your family? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I always, you know, start out that there's two in the world. There are two types of adoptions. There are domestic adoptions and international adoptions. So that's always going to be sort of the first branch, let's say, in a path that you're walking down. Do you want to adopt a child in the country where you reside, which is a domestic adoption, or do you want to adopt a child in, from a country other than where you reside, which is going to be an international adoption. Those are your first two choices um, when you're sort of making a decision. And just to differentiate a little bit, I talk a little bit about the international adoption. That tends to be toddler age children and older. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, you, it's not going to be a newborn infant. Um, you can be gender specific because these are children who are already born, um, as well as age specific, understanding it's toddler age and older. Um, most international adoptions go through an international adoption agency, so a private attorney is often not involved at the front end of that type of adoption, but that's international. And then I'm just going to kind of do really highlights here. Um, then you do domestic, and when you get into a domestic adoption, particularly in the United States, you really do branch out into a lot of different options. So if you decide you're going to do domestic, then the next sort of branch in that, in that path is whether you're going to do a public agency adoption or private agency adoption. So on one side is agency, or if you're going to do a private or a non-agency adoption. So that's sort of your next path. Um, and then, um, so just talking a little bit about those, when you do a non-agency or a private adoption, that's where the uh, adoptive parents are searching for the birth mother on their own. So they may be doing advertising or networking. Um, they may be using some type of company that's going to build them a website. Um, but they're, they're actively searching for an expectant parent who's thinking about making an adoption plan to place their newborn infant with them. It's almost all newborn infants if you're doing a private adoption, mostly. Um, and um, you, you really have a direct contact with that expectant parent and making that adoption plan with them directly. The other branch of that is an agency adoption, you know, and so then, of course, that, as I said, branches off even more into a public agency versus private agency. So your public agency is your foster care adoptions, which is what, you know, I know your, your initial question was about, about foster care. So foster care in the United States is usually school-aged children. Um, you know, there, you can absolutely adopt younger children through the foster care system. I certainly have clients who have done that. But most of the children that are readily available for adoption right now are school-aged children, 8, 9, 10, and older. Similar to an international, you could be gender-specific um, as well as age-specific within the, um, the age of children that are available through the foster care system. 
Um, and then there's private agency adoption. So private agency adoption is where you hire a, a private licensed child placing agency and they find a child to be placed with you. Usually they are also advertising and networking for expectant parents. So that's going to be a newborn. Um, and so 90 some percent of adoptions done through private agencies are newborn infants. Mm. Um, and, and so you, and you can do variations on that agency. So that's it. International domestic, you go domestic, it's either agency or private. If your agency is either public agency or private agency. And as I said, there's variations, right? Toddler age child, older child, newborn infants are almost always going to be your private agency or your private non-agency adoption. And those are your options. That's very high level. We can go into any of them as you want, but that's, those are your options that are out there. Yeah. Well, so some I'm guessing have different risks and some have different costs. So I would think I don't know if this is true, but I heard out there, I'm in Florida, and I heard once that somebody said Florida is a state where you cannot openly advertise that you're looking for a birth mom or you're looking, like you can't advertise. And I wondered, I have no clue what the validity of that is, um, <laughs> but I wondered if that happens in some states where there's some regulations on being able to, because that seems murky to me if there wasn't an attorney or an agency involved to just be advertising and have a mom. I mean, well, do people do that without professionals involved? Well, they do. I mean, there are some states that allow it, but Florida is a good example of a, of, a, of a law that we can sort of talk about how they're sensitive. It is true that in Florida, I'm not licensed in Florida. I always have to say that when I talk about laws of other states, but in Florida, you can't advertise unless you have an attorney or an agency with a number, so a license number. So you have to have okay. some attorney or agent or, or agency in Florida associated with you to advertise. But if you have that, you then can advertise in Florida. Okay. So each state across the country has different laws. Some states don't allow any advertising at all. Some require an attorney license number. Some let you do any type of advertising that you want. Um, but, and so yes, oftentimes adoptive parents are advertising without having consulted with an attorney. Um, they may have an agency home study and, and they are actively looking for expecting parents. I don't recommend that because there's a lot of risk in doing that. If an expectant parent reaches out to you, you, you have to make a lot of decisions early on because the laws are very, very different and they're, they're a little tricky when you're going in between states. Because like for example, if the birth mother needed some financial support and asked that of the adoptive parents directly and they provided it to her, some, law, some states prohibit that. Um, mm. and so then you have a problem with the underlining adoption. So I don't recommend people go out if they're going to do a private adoption and not have a lawyer on retainer to protect them and to make sure that the adoption is being done properly from the beginning. So break down what the role of the agency, are they just finding and making the matches? Do they have some role in kind of figuring out the roles and responsibilities and contracts, or is the contract side much more the attorney? What, what's the, the role of the agency? So when you're working with a licensed child placing agency, they could be one of two things. They can either just do your home study. And so for the adoptive parents, they have to be approved. They have to go through a home study process and be approved mm -hmm. to be adoptive parents. So the agency might just be doing the home study. Um, or they could also be doing the placement. So they could be doing the child placing. So if they are your agency, the adoptive parents agency that is 
looking for an expectant parent for them, then they're really facilitating that whole process. So they're providing the adoptive parents support and education throughout the process. They are counseling the expectant parent, um, providing her support in counseling. Um, they are helping the parties navigate that relationship. So if they're communicating with each other, perhaps a social worker or caseworker from the agency might be on the phone with them early on, or if they meet in person, might not right now during COVID, but if they meet in person, might go to lunch with them to sort of help with that relationship building between the expectant parent or parents and the adoptive parent or parents. Um, and so the agency can fulfill a bunch of different roles like that. But if you're doing an agency placement, they are the ones that are really navigating all of that for you. Usually, um, you know, if you are working with an agency in the state where you live, you don't need a private attorney because everything's being done locally. And so the agency is handling everything. Um, okay. So it's a little different. So those are good questions to ask mm -hmm. as far as, you know, what's covered in my costs to this agency? Is the attorney covered in this? Do I need to get my own attorney? Yeah. Um, Okay, and those are questions you should ask an attorney as well as the agency. Yeah, well, and I, I encourage, when clients come to me and they're thinking about doing an agency, I go over with them all kinds of questions that they should ask the agency. I even have sort of a standard list that I kind of give to my clients and say, ask them. And it's those kinds of questions. What does it cost to join? What's it, what is covered? I always tell adoptive parents, you'd always at the agency, what is not covered by my contract? Mm. What is not, what, what else will I have to incur that's not here? Um, okay. Because that's really a better question than what is covered. Right, right. Because <laughs> it can all sound great. You didn't think of the things that weren't. Exactly. Um, so yeah, but definitely and exactly what are their roles and what do they do? I also encourage adoptive parents to ask the agency to walk them through what an expected parent experiences when they reach out to the agency. So if I'm a pregnant woman and I'm thinking about making an adoption plan and I'm the one who calls the agency, what happens? What happens with me? What am I asked? What am I expected? Who meets with me? What kind of support am I getting? And the adoptive parent should understand what the expectant parent or birth parent, if she's had the baby, gets. So that, because they're paying for that. I mean, their fee is covering right, the yeah. birth, but so they need to understand what is it? And that's a good way to compare agencies too. You know, some agencies, you know, say well you know we have them do an intake and we're there if they need us versus the agency who says well we'll go to the medicaid office with them and we check in with them at the hospital and mm -hmm. so you want to know what are the services under the contract okay that's awesome so i do want to get into open and closed and kind of some of these the the contact stuff but before we do is there ever a time when you go through i think you said 90 percent of private agency are newborn adoptions mm -hmm. yes so what in that 10 percent what circumstances i'm trying to think of a circumstance where an, an older child would get adopted out in a private situation? So a couple of different ways. So for example, in Florida is a good example. So in Florida, if a um, birth mother is having children, have had children removed by a public agency through the state um, for an allegation of abuse or neglect, she can make a private adoption plan before her rights are terminated. So if she has oh. children in the system and they, the system the, the government system needs to say to you, you have an option. You know, we will, we're going to move forward with terminating your parental rights, or this is the path that you're on, or you can choose to make a private adoption plan. So she may choose. Um, so that's one way. Um, other ways is there are 
people who are parenting children, sometimes not the, not the birth parents, it might be a grandparent or an aunt or someone else um, who's taking care of a child, the birth parents are not involved in the child's life and they feel like they can't continue to care for the child. So they might make an adoption plan. And there hasn't been an, abuse, an allegation of abuse or neglect, so it's not gonna go through the public welfare system. So okay. those people are gonna reach out to friends and family, maybe an agency or an attorney and say, what are my options? Okay, all right, that makes a lot of sense. So it sounds like international and public is pretty much the, the school age kids or at least above a toddler and for the most part, private adoption is, is kind of the pull for a lot of people that want a newborn right out of the hospital. Yes, I, and that's what I find. So I work with clients who choose all of these options and certainly um, clients who really feel strongly about having a newborn infant are gonna ch clearly choose private or a private agency adoption. And that pull, that, that, that sort of emotional or physical pull to have a newborn infant, comes from many different ways or many different places, right? Some of those, some of my clients have just gone through fertility treatments that have been unsuccessful. So they've been sort of planning and hoping for a newborn for a long time. And that's just where they are. Um, some feel strongly that they want the, the bonding experience with a newborn, that they want to sort of start um, with a child at a young, at that young age and watch all the developmental um, milestones that the child has. I have other clients that are very comfortable with the idea of a toddler, um, as well as clients that are like, no, no real interest in changing diapers and, and having sleepless sure. nights and very comfortable with the idea that they're going to take their child to, you know, they're going to adopt, bond, build a relationship, and they're going to take their child to school. Um, and so it just really depends on what the adoptive parents feel is right for them um, as to which one of these they choose. Okay, so I always thought that when you go through, it's, it's kind of clear to me if you were doing a private adoption, why you would need an attorney. And it seems like there would be, you know, contracts that would need to be written up between birth mom and how all of that's going to be navigated. But I had always thought that if you get a kid out of foster care and then you move to adopt, that it was all just kind of taken care of by the state. But of course you're in the courts and there's lawyers involved. <laughs> so you know, you said that everybody's thinking, regardless of this path, should come consult an attorney. So what is your role in the public adoption, um, you know, as people are moving forward with going through the state or going through an agency? I know some people can go directly through Department of Children and Families in some states. Others go through public agency that places kids through the Department of Children and Families. So, right. So, so I could break it up into two ways in which I'm involved. First off, if it's truly a local Department of Social Services adoption. So the child, the family is in one of my local jurisdictions and adopting a child out of the system. Um, usually I am brought in to do mediation. So to negotiate a post-adoption contact agreement, I'm brought in quite frequently to do that. Um, and where that's, yeah, the, the state is handling termination of parental rights and facilitating the adoption. And, but when it comes time to, can we reach a post-adoption contact agreement, they have the foster parents usually retain a private attorney. And so I'm one of the attorneys that is retained to do that. So I might come in to negotiate a post-adoption contact agreement. I might negotiate a subsidy agreement for the adoptive parents. Um, and then depending on the jurisdiction, I might actually finalize the adoption for them. So I'm the one who actually files their petition the state provides me the consent or the termination order that they received, and I'm filing the case and finalizing. 
So with those kinds of sort of local public agency, I almost come in at the end, right? So everything's, the path is there and they're bringing me in to mediate an agreement, negotiate subsidy, finalize the adoption. Um, And so that's one way. The other way when it's public agency is, so because there's these sort of private public relationships between public agencies and, and private agencies like in Florida, but also because a, a family who's approved to adopt from the foster care, like in Maryland, or arguably could adopt a child out of the Oregon foster care system. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's very different. That's not going to be run through Maryland's Department of Social Services. That's going to be run sure. through Oregon's Department of Social Services. And so that family, those families often retain me on the front end to be available so okay. that we can talk about the placement. They have to go through ICPC, which is an interstate compact on placement of children for the child to get from Oregon to Maryland. Um, and to sort of also, same idea though, a post-adoption contact agreement, I might be looking at a subsidy and I will most definitely be finalizing their adoption, usually in their home state. So with those, I'm brought in a little bit earlier and it's more of like consulting and advice and sort of overseeing. Um, and that's probably mostly because it's an interstate case. So I've heard that it's most common that you're gonna, you're usually gonna foster before you adopt, you know, if you go through public adoption. Is that your understanding? I'm feeling like with the Oregon case, that would be kind of like the kid's parental rights have already been terminated and you're moving directly towards adoption. Do you see parents going directly to adoption often or do they need to uh, be a foster parent first? Well, a lot of my clients go directly to adoption. So they want, they come in, they, 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 they don't, they're not interested in being foster parents. They understand what that is, um, but they want to be parents and they want to adopt an older child. So they are more likely to be approved to adopt from the foster care system and adopt from another state versus doing it locally. There's no question what you're describing is, is actually misnomer. Many people come to me and say, well, we can't adopt from the foster care system because we have to be foster parents. Um, and we have to wait till a child's ready. That's true if you're doing it in your local jurisdiction and you're getting licensed as foster parents with the hope of adopting. That's not true if you okay. get approved to adopt from the foster care system and you're looking somewhere else in the United States to adopt. Oh, I think that's a very, very important nuance that a lot of people don't don't understand. Very. I don't think I've had anybody who's come to me know that before they walked into my office. And they were like, wow, oh, we can do that. And then, of course, I can guide them through the process. It does require that they get approved by a private agency. So we have several agencies in our area that can approve couples or singles to adopt from the foster care system. They have to pay for that home study, unlike if you're fostering. It's nothing you don't pay for it. Um, But then it opens up the door to a child anywhere in the United States. Well, what great information, because I think some of the biggest fears is like, okay, I I would like to let a child into my home um, and I'd like to offer it to a child that's currently in foster care or has come through the state, but I cannot build a bond with a child and have the child possibly go, go back or change homes or whatever. So this sounds like a great option for people that know that they want to adopt and, you know, they, that's, that's the direction that they're going in. Yes, it very much is. And you're absolutely right. Not a lot of people are are aware that that's an option. Awesome. Okay, so let's talk about open and closed adoption. Because when I was talking to you before, when we were kind of prepping for this podcast, 
I, and I'm going to out myself here because I feel like a lot of people might not know as well, but I totally thought open means, you know, you're, con you're contacting the birth parent often, you're sending them pictures, they might be calling you, you might be meeting up with them once a year. I thought open meant wide open, and I thought closed meant you never even tell the kid they're adopted. <laughs> so... Obviously, there's a lot that lies in the middle there, and you kind of opened my eyes to, you actually told me that you pretty much only do op open adoptions. That's correct. And I was like, wow. <laughs> so tell me about why that is and what the difference between open, open and closed is. Sure. So, and I, and I also find that this is uh, somewhere where I, I draw very clear distinctions. I think as a lawyer, it's really important for me to, for people to understand terminology and understand when they're signing on for something, what they're getting themselves into. So an open adoption means that you know the birth parents information and they know yours. There could be different degrees of information that you know, like first names only or generally where they, they live and where you live or employment. But at the end of the day, they know who you are. You know who they are. You've probably met the birth parent. Or the birth parents met you. So you know what each other looks like. That's an open adoption. Um, and a closed adoption, just to converse it, I haven't done closed adoptions in 20 years. I used to do them all the time when I first started practicing. A closed adoption is where you don't know who the birth mother or birth father is, and they don't know who you are. That's open and closed. And there's different, like I said, sometimes there's this in-between where, you know, a, some people use the term like fully open, meaning like you know birth mother's last name, her address, you've met her, you've gone to her house. It's like a really open adoption, right? I mean, there's total exchange, free flow of information. And then there's variations of that. That's open versus closed. I do almost all open adoptions because the research is, is that that's actually better for the adoptee in the long term to know that their parents knew or met or have information about their biological parents um, and that there's some type of relationship or some type of understanding about what happened and perhaps an opportunity to meet in the future. I draw a very, very clear distinction between open and closed adoptions and post-adoption contact. And that's where people mix them up. You know, they say, oh, an open adoption means I'm going to be having visits with the birth mother. And that's not true. And the best way to kind of drive this home is for me to explain that I've done fully closed adoptions, fully closed with post-adoption contact. And that's because they don't know each other, but the letters are going through my office or going through an agency with no identifying information. So the birth parent might be getting an update on the child every year and have no idea what the adoptive parents' names are or where they live. So it's a closed adoption, but there's post-adoption contact. Similarly, you can have a fully open adoption where there's no post-adoption contact. The birth mother doesn't want pictures and letters and updates. She knows who you are. She could pick up the phone and call you and you her, but she doesn't want it and you don't want it. And so there's no contact. So you have to really understand that openness just is about at that point in the adoption, knowing what information do you know about each other. The post-adoption contact is negotiated. So most agencies, most attorneys, including myself, recommend at a minimum pictures and letters once a year until the child is 18. And those pictures and letters can go both ways. Um, so the adoptive parents are updating the birth parents and, by, and birth parents, if they want, can send a letter or update to the adoptive parent. It doesn't mean that letter is going to the child. This is an agreement between the adults. And then okay. it, it could go from there. I mean, I have, I have clients who, again, it's a, there's a very, very broad range. I have clients who every year let me know that they just had their annual dinner with 
both sets of birth parents for both their kids at their house that they do every year. Um, and that they, you know, talk with them regularly and they FaceTime with them all the time and they are friends versus, you know, clients who will send a picture and letter even through my office for me to forward on, um, as well as birth parents sending those to my office to forward to the adoptive couple. So there's wide range and you can negotiate whatever you're comfortable with with regards to post-adoption contact. The level of openness is really going to be determined by the agency as well as the parties. Like if, if the adoptive parents don't really want uh, her to have or the him have all of their identifying information and they tell the agency up front, they'll make sure that, that they're matching with the birth mother has similar preferences with regards to openness and similarly to contact. Okay, so that's really, really, really helpful. Now, the post-adoption contact that you negotiate in the beginning, how often or do you ever see that that needs to be renegotiated or that, you know, things change, right? And <laughs> levels of contact. And we don't know how this is going to work when we're first starting out. So does that ever get renegotiated as far as like actually into a document? And if the contact, I don't know, is it a contact order? So no. So a post-adoption contact agreement, it's enforceable in, in quite a few states in the United States. But if you enter into one, if somebody is not abiding by it, the other party could go to court and get a court order to enforce the contact. Okay. But it's a, it's an agreement. Yeah. Okay. It's an agreement between the parties. Yeah. And I remember I was a post-adoption case manager and I remember one family we had that did have an open adoption and they had mom send uh, letters as often as she wanted to, but we intercepted almost all of them and all of them talked about, you know, so-and-so is just watching you for this amount of time and until mommy can take you back. And there's just things that weren't going to be helpful for the child and that were painting a picture that was unrealistic. So all of them were intercepted and we weren't able to give any of those letters to the kids. And we weren't really able to negotiate with birth mom right. the appropriateness of her letters yeah. or whatever. So we just had to intercept them. But there's a lot of possible unintended consequences of different level of contact. So do you kind of talk that through with families? I do. And it's going to depend on what kind of case I'm doing as well, right? So in foster care, we we really try to work with everybody involved. So the child's attorney, um, usually there's caseworkers, another one to sort of understand what's going to be best. Because understanding that those children are being placed for adoption after most likely proof of abuse or neglect. Um, and so, you know, exposing that child to a parent who was abusive towards them, you know, on a regular basis may not be in that child's best interest. So mm -hmm. that that's a different kind of negotiation in the sense that we tend to not be negotiating a lot of contact in a foster mm -hmm. care adoption. And even if we are negotiating contact, I always try to negotiate provisions like you know, when the child is of, um, you know, a significant age or an age, you know, an age in which the adoptive parents feel is appropriate or developmentally appropriate, whatever language we want to use, and the child no longer wants to have the visits and the visits will stop um, and, you know, or the mental health professional will do an evaluation and to determine and that person, you know, mm -hmm. so I try to put something in there that once the child reaches a certain age and that age has been um, negotiated as young as 11 up to like 15 that, you know, the child then their voice is heard. So if they don't want to have the visits anymore, people are not going to force them to go visit somebody that they don't want to see. Um, and so we try to negotiate that kind of language in the foster care adoptions, which is a little different 
then where we're doing newborn infant negotiations and we're talking about voluntary, right? This child has never been subjected to abuse or neglect. Um, I mean, maybe the birth mom used drugs and so there's an argument there, but um, she's voluntarily making that placement. The birth father is voluntarily making the placement as well. We're not forcibly terminating. And so those contracts, you know, we usually are negotiating slightly different. And what we try to do is put language in there that also doesn't really allow for renegotiation, but allows for an understanding that as the child gets older, the child's needs will change. The adoptive parent situation might change. So we put things in there. Um, you know, sometimes we might put the age thing. So, you know, when the child is, you know, of the developmental age and the adoptive parents feels appropriate and the child wants to, you know, see the birth parent, like maybe there was no visit. We may put a trigger in there that the child can ask for visits at a certain age and that the birth parent will discuss that and that they will determine whether that's inappropriate or we may cease visits. Um, I generally recommend that if we're going to do visits that we try to do them until the child is maybe five and then hold off until the child is a little bit older. Um, and that part of that just comes from advice and guidance from mental health professionals that I've worked with for years. You know, they usually, again, I'm not a mental health professional, but my understanding obviously is before the child is three, it's really more about the adults, not so much about the child. The child's probably not gonna remember much about those visits. Um, mm -hmm. You know, once the child gets school age, though it can get, a little more challenging for the child to have to explain the different adults in their life. Um, and so maybe pause visits um, or structure them differently. Like I'll propose things like, okay, if we're not going to do visits once the child is five in-person visits, uh, maybe we'll do a video visit or maybe we'll increase it and do four phone calls that year instead of one phone call. So I try to make sure that at least the expectant parent is getting some access um, and the, and the adoptive parents feel like they have control, but most importantly, that the child is being protected through this, that we're not making decisions for a child that we don't know yet where they are developmentally or what they're gonna need, um, because every person and every child, of course, is different. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That really helps kind of break it down. I, I, it's amazing to me how, how long you can go along thinking you know something, you know? And I'm like, <laughs> oh my gosh, there's so many layers to this. and no wonder why you know the community at large doesn't know a lot of the intricacies of all of these major decisions that families have to make when they're going through this process i wanted to ask you and if you don't have uh you know a great answer for this it's totally fine but as far as like international versus domestic and this as far as why people choose uh international when you see uh, clients that come to you that are already thinking about international, is it usually something they've thought out for a while, they know the country, um, or is it you're kind of introducing them to that? I'm trying to like, I wonder if there's any patterns between the people that choose domestic versus international and what the reasoning might be behind that. Do you, is there any patterns you've seen? Well, I, most of the time when I have um, clients who are leaning towards international, I mean, some of them have done work ahead of time, at least enough to say they, they want, you know, a toddler age child. So a lot of the reasons that I hear from clients for choosing international, I can give, I'm going to give you a handful of the reasons that I routinely hear repeatedly. You know, one is that they are gender specific. So if they definitely want to adopt a little girl or a little boy, 
they know that that'll be easier to do internationally than to do with a domestic newborn infant. So gender specificity could definitely be our driver. Um, another reason is the children are already free for adoption. So they're getting a, you know, arguably able to adopt a toddler age child without having to worry about whether the birth mother is going to consent or change her mind. Um, so these children are legally free for adoption. So they know that once they're matched and a child is identified, that they don't have to worry about any of those sort of legal things, um, okay. which also kind of leads into there's no post-adoption contact in, or an openness mm. in an international adoption. So if the family feels really strongly that they, I'm going to use the word closed for lack of a better word, a closed type of adoption, international is going to be a better option because you won't know who the birth parents are. There will be no post-adoption contact agreement. Once you bring your child home, you're, you're that child's parent and there's really no connection or um, information about the biological family for the most part. Um, and then finally, the, the, other, the last reason I often hear is that there's a little bit more predictability with an international adoption. So, you know, when you're adopting from another country, that country has a process, the United States has a process. And so they're able to tell you, okay, if you go into this program, let's say from China, um, we can tell you that you are going to be placed with a child in 18 months or two years or three, whatever the time is. And they're actually able to tell you what's going to happen in increments, right? So your home mm -hmm. study dossier is going to take this long. And then within six months of that, a child's going to be identified within six months of that. Right? So they're able, so there's some predictability um, and a little bit of certainty in an international adoption that doesn't exist when you're doing, especially a domestic newborn infant adoption. Those are what I hear. And those are the types of clients that end up pursuing um, internationals when those are the things that they're looking for and that are important to them. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. That's, that's really helpful. So one more question I have for you. We had somebody on the podcast, a former foster youth who had been through, you know, a whole bunch of homes and then was finally adopted, but ended up running away from that adoptive family. And he said, that there's no way to reverse an adoption. So um, being like he said you could do an emancipation, but it didn't really, he wasn't able to reclaim his old last name, uh, like applying for colleges and stuff like that. He was always seen as like, you have to have your parents' social security numbers and know their, um, what they make. And so that always led him to not get financial aid because his parents made a lot of money that were adopted, but he wasn't connected with them. So. Can you lend any insight on if there's like, is there an unadoption thing <laughs> and, um, and a way to get like, it's very, very final is what I understand. Yeah. I mean, and I, I actually get this question probably once a year from somebody, but an adoption okay. is final. It is final. There's, you can't undo an adoption. Um, you really can't annul an adoption. Um, so the only way Let's, I'm not even going to say undo because that's what you're doing. The only way to get a different situation is to have somebody else adopt you. That's how final mm -hmm. an adoption is. So I've done cases where a child has been adopted, let's say in a step-parent adoption, and then their biological parent has come back when they're adults and they wanted their biological parent like back on their birth certificate. And that biological parent then has had to adopt their child back in order to terminate the prior adoption. Um, but that's, yeah, it's permanent, 
once the adoption is done, it's final and irrevocable. There's no undoing it. Um, and he's he would be correct in that emancipation, that all that does is liberates them from having to be under their parents' finger and roof. It does not cut off the financial ties or the obligations between parent and child. Wow, that that's um, incredible. And so can you get adopted after you're 18? Absolutely. Legally? Yes. Okay. Yep. Okay. So if, you know, you're 22 and you're like, listen, I want my biological parent on my birth certificate um, because adoption changes your birth certificate. That's, that's correct. correct. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. So they have, yeah. So they have, I mean, if it was a biological parent, they wanted to adopt them, they'd have to locate their biological parent. Their biological parent would have to go through the process of adopting them back. Um, I mean, he, they could change their name. It still doesn't change legal status, but they certainly can change their name back to, you know, or whatever name they want to you as an adult, you can change your name as well. It's so interesting because I hear, you know, when I'm thinking about open versus closed and that you do mostly open and then how a lot of international are pretty closed. I just think about all the adoptees that I hear from that have, you know, as they get older, not having any medical history, not being able to understand um, at all what to write down when they go to their medical visits or, or mm -hmm. those lengthy, you know, what does your brother have and your mother have and all of that. So um, do you know, is collecting medical history on bio parents a pretty typical practice of agencies? Yes, any type, especially okay. domestically in the United States, we usually collect a full social medical history on both birth parents and get as much information as we can, which usually goes back two or three generations and goes sideways. So their siblings, their kids, their parents, their grandparents, and gets a health That's history, great. medical, social, um, when I represent birth parents, we spend quite a bit of time trying to collect as much information as possible. Uh, we call it social medical history. Um, oftentimes can take hours um, and oftentimes can go back multiple times to follow up on questions um, and making sure the adoptive parents have that information. That's great. Yeah, I hear that that is something that can be difficult. But that's not going to be true just, you know, on an international. There's not going to be that kind of information. It's not available. Yeah. Yeah. It's so helpful for, for you to give all of these details. And I know that we really probably just scraped the surface, <laughs> um, but that's super helpful. So I know that you have a uh, website and a blog. Is there anything, any resources or anywhere that we can either support your work or, or find you as a resource um, to follow you? Um, well, certainly I have social media. Um, I have, you know, everything's under my firm name, which is my name, Jennifer Fairfax, LLC. So we have a Facebook page. Um, obviously I have my website, jenniferfairfax.com. Um, on Twitter, we're Parenting Choice um, is, our, is our Twitter handle. Um, so all of that, um, you know, anybody can also just reach out to me at any time that they have adoption related questions through the website. There's a, a way to fill out a form and to, to send me an inquiry. Um, my office policy is to respond to all inquiries within 48 hours. We usually do it within the same day, but um, certainly they would get a reply that way. Um, but yeah, follow um, and support adoption um, programs in your local area. So I try not to um, uh, you know, promote any one particular organization for adoption resources and support. Um, but I definitely know that there are a lot of um, 
programs within every community that provides adoption related support. Not agencies necessarily, although you certainly can support agencies as well, but just looking for organizations that provide counseling. Um, you know, in our area, we, we have a couple here. Um, and so look for those, um, especially the post-adoption services. It's really important for adoptees, birth parents, and adoptive parents to have ongoing counseling even after the match and placement has been made. That is awesome. And I'll tell you guys that she definitely is responsive because I reached out through the website and was like, hey, I had a question for my community and she didn't know me through, you know, <laughs> at all. And, and she totally jumped on and obviously has given so much of her time and resources. So, and the reason I found her is because I Googled something and her blog post was one of the top answers. So to get, you know, in the top couple searches on Google is no easy feat. So <laughs> she's got a good SEO team. And I, I love that. I love, I keep meeting people that are professionals that easily could not give me the time of day, but they are so passionate about what they do in serving this community that, that they show up and, uh, you know, we couldn't do it without the support of, of all the professionals in this field. So thank you so much for your time. It's really, really, really been great. Well, you're quite welcome. Thank you for having me. It's a joy. I'm always willing to come back if there's something specific somebody wants to know about adoption. All right, guys, I hope that that was helpful. I hope you learned something. I know that I did so many interworkings and different things to think about, right? And so I hope that you know, if you're not somebody who is going to adopt in the future, that as we are looking at people who have adopt, we can have a more open mind now of all the decisions and different, you know, paths that that person might have taken, not making any assumptions. Shout out to Caroline Ferguson, who was the first one to purchase an I'm a big deal t-shirt. I'm so excited. I hope when you get that t-shirt that you take a picture of yourself in it and that you upload it into the Stable Moments podcast group because we want to see an army of people that believe that they are a big deal in the lives of these children. Also in that group, I just dropped a topic train. If there's anything that you guys want to hear, if you're curious about it, if you'd like me to have a specific guest on or cover a topic, please go drop those uh, in the Stable Moments podcast. You don't need to find something that I wrote. You guys can make your own posts in there. Uh, this is supposed to be an open discussion. So anything that you want to bring up with the group, you can. And I can also use that to develop more content that's specific to what you actually want to hear. That's exactly how this episode was inspired. I will link to everything that Jennifer Fairfax has to offer as far as links and social medias in the show notes. Please share this episode with anyone that you think is considering or would consider adoption. I think this information is really important and I know there's a lot of people that wish that they had heard this episode or had a conversation with an attorney before they started their process. All right, guys, I will see you next week. Stay safe, stay healthy, have fun, and remember you're a big deal.